Cry Malt has been supplying the best ingredients to Australian and New Zealand brewers for 30 years. Their range of malt, hops and yeast is sure to take your beer to the next level. Proud sponsors of Brews News and Beer as a Conversation since the very beginning. Learn more about Cry Malt at www.crymalt.com. part of the plan to put a brewery in but for many years it was just a plan it's a hundred percent acquisition of green beacon no we had a chat with everybody anyone would have seen this coming a mile away you know the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing oh yeah that's super simple and direct question it's always fun to get to speak about beer hi i'm brews news editor matt kirkegaard and that's just what we're here to do talk about beer. Or, this week, beer on TV, but also beer as food, as we meet chef Paul West. As host of Australia's version of River Cottage, Paul is what these days would be called a celebrity chef, but it's also a title that, having worked with him numerous times over eight years, I'm sure he would see that as an insult. He's a chef, and a chef that is passionate about food, ingredients, provenance, and sustainability. He is also the host of the upcoming ABC show, The Big Brew Challenge, that airs for the first time at 8.30pm, Tuesday 8th of February on ABC TV, and will be available through TV and iView. The Big Brew Challenge will see brewer Sam Fuss guide three teams of craft beer enthusiasts who will compete over three weeks for their beer to be crowned champion of the Big Brew Challenge. Paul and I discuss this and what he has learned about beer from the process of making the show, but also the challenges in bringing beer to television, which is something that we don't see very often. We also talk about the similarities between beer and cooking, as beer is much closer to cooking than, for example, wine is. Paul also has a new book out called Homegrown, A Year of Growing, Cooking and Eating, and we look at what, if anything, the craft brewing industry can learn from the world of kitchen gardening. I've hosted Paul on stage at food events for a long time, and he has been someone that I've wanted to speak with about beer for just as long. His passion for food is genuine and infectious, and there is much that the brewing world can learn from him. So I hope you enjoy this conversation every bit as much as I did. Paul West, welcome to Beer as a Conversation. Oh, Matt, such a pleasure <laughs> to be here, mate. I can't believe it's taken you eight years to get me on the podcast. Uh, I, well, I, I have raised it before, um, but again, it's uh, you don't want to look like you're just pulling in the celebrity power for the sake of the celebrity <laughs> power. So we, we can actually talk about beer, which is very, very cool. No, I'm always uh, up for a chat around beer, mate. You know that. <laughs> mate, okay, talk to us the Big Brew Challenge. Yeah, so uh, the ABC uh, and the Catalyst program got in touch with me midway through last year with uh, a suggestion that they'd like me to host a program, uh, a Catalyst documentary about beer. Uh, So after some significant arm twisting that lasted for about five seconds, I signed up and um, it was, I I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the the bee challenge that we made with Catalyst a while ago, but we basically uh, explore the science of brewing uh, through through a bit of a competition. So, you know, brewing's probably one of the, or fermentation's probably one of the oldest human interactions um, with chemistry uh, in, in civilization. So it's been around for a very long time and, and a lot of people, you know, we, we, we enjoy it uh, and we eat fermented or, or brewed products, or drink them, sorry. But how much do we really know exactly about what's going on? So 
So the program really delves into the science of fermentation uh, and what's happening uh, during the brewing process of beer. Uh, and we, we, we tell the story through a narrative by inviting three teams, uh, each team with two people of beer enthusiasts, uh, but people that haven't had uh, much, if any, brewing experience to, um, to create a style of beer in a competition format. Uh, and then we use their journey through the brewing process to to uh, unpack the science a little bit. So it's um and obviously there's more um, than just the fermentation process. There's you know the malting and uh, the chemistry of hops and uh, you know and all the different temperature and chemical effects that you know and processes that are happening during a brewing process. So it certainly um, went a long way to expanding my knowledge of uh, of the humble process of brewing beer. Mate, I, I was so excited to hear that Catalyst was doing an um, episode or you know, a series on beer because I've lost track of how many TV producers have contacted me over the year because you know craft beer is hot, it's happening, they think that it will automatically translate itself to television and yet our... TV screen short of you know seeing you know the old Bob Hawke sculling a a jar of beer or something like that. We haven't given a serious look to the science or the you know the, the background of beer, um, which is an important way to to educate beer drinkers that it's not just something you know to to smash down after the mowing on a hot day. Um, yeah, and, and and science is a really interesting way to 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 do that. Well, I mean, I actually, I had that. I was just driving back from Sydney back to my home on the south coast of New South Wales yesterday after recording the voice voiceover for the program. And I, I kind of had that thought myself that it was like, well, there, there hasn't really been a significant on-screen celebration of the the, the craft and science of, of beer brewing. And I mean, where we might not be, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong here, might not be quite as uh, advanced in the brewing um, culture as, say, the United States. But we're not far behind, and it and it really feels like uh, the craft brewer, the independent brewer, and, and that that scene and that industry has is really reaching a new level of maturation at the moment. Where it's, it, uh, you know, this is just my sense of it, at least anyway. That, that once upon a time, I guess it was for you know, kind of viewed as more for fringe, you know, glass twirling, you know, beer beer <laughs> enthusiasts. But, the, you know, when I say beer enthusiasts, I'm basically like beer geeks kind of thing uh, because, you know, the average beer enthusiast just wants their, you know, their standard big, you know, big international brewer lager and that's it. Um, but I really feel like now that the, the, the breweries, the independent breweries in particular, are really finding their feet and their place with within our communities. And I just love the, the idea that, it feels like a brewery is almost as ubiquitous as a bakery or a butcher shop in towns in Australia now. You know, you've got your local butcher, you've got your local baker, and you've also increasingly got your local tap house where, you know, you can go and pour off kegs or, you know, pour straight out of the vat and, you know, and they know you and your tastes and your preferences and, you know, it's kind of um, a local product that that, that is brewed and created in your own town. So I, I just really feel like it's – that that industry is having its yeah its moment in the sun. I mean, obviously, lots of people that listen to this podcast would be feeling like you know it's been happening for a very very long time. But it just to me, there's a sense of it being really embraced by the mainstream, and and I hope that um you know that this catalyst program goes uh, a long way to to furthering that and just maybe just demystifying a little bit of it and just illustrating the fact that it is a craft uh, 
And there's a big difference between being an enthusiast and being someone who actually really knows what they're, what they're doing. And, and, um, and the, the understanding of the exacting science of brewing, but not just that, also it's a connection to agriculture. You know, we, we explored that uh, in the program through uh, Voyager Craft Malt and the, the work that they do and the fact that it's, it's essence beer, you know, as, as a kind of alcoholic refreshment, but it's also, it's also an agricultural product. It, it starts first and foremost in the, in the barley field. So I think that was, it was nice to kind of paint the full picture of, of, of what beer is. You're a hunter boy, if, if I'm not wrong. You know, you grew up in yeah. the, the Hunter Valley, you know, That's right. where you played football and drank beer and you didn't yeah. think too much about the beer. <laughs> you, yeah. you probably no, exactly. talk more about the football. Do you think the beer suffered from from that culture, you know, that uninquiring culture, and we didn't stop to think, well, you know, whilst we talk about the malt and the hops that go yeah. into the beer, where they actually come from? I think it did suffer, and I think it also suffered just from the cultural stigma of the of, you know, maybe the early adopters pushing some of the boundaries of what a beer is, you know, with those kind of crazy, you know, and bold uh, and maybe not so sessionable beers that that you know are generally associated with craft or independent brewers. And, but maybe that was in the early days, but it certainly feels like now that um, that that all the the big players and even the smaller you know like small town breweries they still realise the importance of a of a sessionable beer, and so I think initially there was that a, a bit of a cultural stigma that you know say the the footy playing Hunter Valley resident that just likes their beer cold and brown uh, would never go to a craft beer, but now it feels like. There's a greater appreciation of um, of the fact that it can be made by an independent brewer. It doesn't have to be fancy. And, in fact, it's going to taste amazing. It can be the same style as your, you know, big international company uh, corporate beer. But it actually it tastes better because it's made with that little bit more care and understanding. It's made at a smaller scale. It's made it using uh, better, higher-quality ingredients. And I think, you know, we kind of underestimate the palate of the average punter. And I, I guess I've seen this happen time and time again in pubs around Australia in the kitchen where, you know, uh, people think, oh, it's just pub food. No one really cares. And you get a new owner and they slash all the costs on the menu and the food all of a sudden, you know, they're using cheaper schnitzels and cheaper chips and cheaper salad. And all of a sudden people stop eating there because even though it's a pub feed, they still like it to be good. Uh, and I think you know, there's that increasing understanding now that when it comes to beer, that that you can still you can drink uh, an independently brewed beer without being a beer snob. And no offence to the beer, the beer snobs and critics that, that no doubt listen to this podcast. <laughs> you play a very very important role in the culture as well. Of we course. still need them as well, but uh, absolutely, you know. I- Something that I fell into foolishly when I first got into beer and educating people about it is that I thought, well, you know, you look at the mystique that wine has and we need to give Mm. beer a little bit of that. Um, And so you talk about beer being the new wine. And the longer I've gone on, I've realized that actually beer isn't. It's a a fundamentally (laughs) different product because wine, you harvest the grapes once a year and then you try and nurture the grape juice into the best, you know, spoiled grape juice that it, it can be. Um, in in wine whereas beer you've got your four basic ingredients and you can sort of add others to it but then within those four ingredients you know there are hundreds of yeasts that will each impart a different flavor you've got 
your um, grains and you know whether you use uh, you know barley or wheat or rye or whatever but then they're malted a certain way and roasted and you know you, so you've got the Maillard reaction that takes place in them that you know caramelizes and then you've got your hops and the dozens of varieties of hops so it's beer is actually much more like cooking um, yeah. in, in that sense that you, you start with this palette of ingredients and decide where you want to, you know, what you want to make as opposed to where they can go. You know, I think that the the brewer uh, does have a lot more control over the end product than, say, a winemaker because, you know, as you said, you as the winemaker, obviously there's a great deal of skill involved, but you, you're kind of dealing with the vintage and whatever that gives you, you know, and you can create a very limited expression out of that grape uh, and that vintage where I, I guess I just really – had a newfound appreciation through this series of the the I guess superficial simplicity of beer, as you said, the you know the kind of four key ingredients. But then that that appreciation came once I realised, and you touched on this just then, that that those four simple ingredients can be expressed in almost countless ways. So, you know, it's almost infinite the different style of beers that you can make with it before you even start using adjuncts, uh, which is just it's mind-boggling, really. And I do love that it is, um, you know, I, I guess homebrew uh, cops a bad rap because it's often done in sheds <laughs> and, you know, by amateurs and, you know, it's like with dirty equipment and, you know, tin mixes and all that kind of stuff and it doesn't make a great product, uh, you know, and that's, you know, that's a generalisation. Obviously, there are some absolutely brilliant home brewers out there. Um, but I, I guess now when you when you take that step up to the commercial scale, even if it's small commercial without getting to the size of, say, Filter or, you know, or someone like that where Sam just runs a mega operation, but it's still so process-driven and, and, you know, there's – it's a real science to it. Like there, there's a little bit of, uh, you know, kind of creative control over what the recipe is. But then once you're into the the actual process of brewing, like it's, you have to be really onto it. Like I, I, I imagine brewing really good brewers are perfectionist types, you know, because you've just got it, you've got to get it right. You've got to get the timing right, the temperature right, the grain bill right, the hop additions right. There's so many areas where it can go, a very simple recipe can go very, very wrong uh, and totally spoil the the final outcome. And, you know, you, you're dealing with microbiology and chemistry and there's all these really complex interactions at play that help make this beautiful product that we all love so dearly uh, of beer. So I, I think I think there's a lot of chefs out there that would make really good brewers, to be honest. <laughs> and, and, and vice versa. And I'm actually reminded of Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential where he talks about the sort of person who loves cooking at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, all the friends, oh, you should open a restaurant. And they get caught up in the romance, you know, having spent – you know, a week planning their Saturday dinner party where they sort of only have to knock out eight covers for one of a yeah, better yeah, word. Yeah. And, yes. you know, they don't have to cost that. They don't have to, um, you know, work out their time and the cost of the ingredients because it's just about the, the, the reaction. But then when that person goes and opens a restaurant and there's not the same – once you've done your crab lasagna or whatever, you've, you have to knock out, you know, 100 covers a night of exactly the yes. same thing. And then a week yep. later when the people come back – to have it again they want it tasting the same thing when there can be all of those variables that you just talked about and brewing is very much the same there as well yes now i i think that idea of someone who you know one sunday a month goes out to the shed and they've got their (laughs) grain bill and it's you know it's all done by the local kind of brewery supply shop you know that's all ground and ready to go and 
you know, uh, and they make every chance, like that home cook, make an absolutely mind-boggling, sensational beer. You know, that their, their friends like, whoa, like you, you should do this. And, you know, and no doubt lots of um, the people that are actually working as brewers within the industry at the moment did come from that. But it's not to say that the that there's not a very steep learning curve between the two. Um, because, you know, when you're scaling up from a 20-litre carboy or fermenter to a 2,000-litre, you know, stainless steel uh, mash tun, then, you know, it's a, it's a, pretty, it's a pretty big leap. Uh, and the stakes are a lot higher. Like if you stuff up a 20 litre or a 35 litre beer at home, you know, you're out of pocket like 30, 40 bucks. But if you stuff up a 2,000, <laughs> 5,000, 10,000 litre beer in a commercial context, then that's, I mean, that's that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money to be tipping down the drain uh, because, you know, you maybe didn't have the systems in place to, to be able to do it. So, But, I, I mean, I love that now that, that the craft beer or the independent brewery industry has is, is really kind of carved itself off from the big players. And now there are career pathways where people, you know, they can work with experienced brewers um, and they can learn the ropes and they can learn what goes into making a good independent craft beer. So... Uh, you know, I hold um, very, very high hopes for the future of the Australian brewing industry. And I mean, you know, I kind of mentioned earlier that it feels like there is a level of maturation in it, but that's not to say that there's still not room for, for growth and innovation. And, you know, I, I, it just feels like that, that there's just so much continued embracement of it culturally here in Australia. And it just feels like it's found us a really nice home. The competition, three teams of two having to make the best beer with the guidance of uh, uh, Sam Fuss. Yes. Did they learn, you know, as beer lovers, did they learn a lot about the, you know, the, the ingredients and the science of brewing in making their beers? Massively. You know, they, um, so Sam was always there with a very steady hand. Um, Sam and also the head brewer from Small Batch, Luigi, uh, in more of a support role to, to Sam and the brewers. But, you know, I, I think it's one of those things where, you know, if you're a foodie, say, and you like eating out and, you know, and, and you enjoy the hospitality scene and, and food, there's so much to learn if you slip behind the curtain of a kitchen, you know, that like if you've only ever enjoyed it as a consumer, uh, then, you know, you've obviously got a palette and, uh, you know, a, a vocabulary around what you're doing, but the difference between that and actually knowing what goes into production and the art and science that goes into that. So, yeah, they, I mean, they had a massive learning experience and um, I think every single one of the six contestants of the three teams will be, um, will have a really deeply newfound appreciation for, for their for their favourite beverage. And I love, you know, that all three teams came from a totally different background. We had um, Rosemary and Ashley, who are who are kind of Instagram beer influencers. Some of your listeners may be familiar uh. with, with both of them, want to be Hopstar and uh, Libations Lady, I think, are their Okay, I, I, I follow her, yes. I didn't realise that uh, she was on it. There you go. Oh, yeah, yep. So there, and then uh, there were old mates, uh, Peter and Paul, who I think mainly enjoyed the, you know, the consumption of beer together. Uh, and then there was a father and son duo, an accountant and a sound engineer student uh, who who kind of used the, the process as a, a bit of a, a bonding experience um, and something that they could do, you know, after after a bit of change in their world from, from the pandemic and lockdown. So, uh, I, but yeah, certainly. I mean, everyone in the program, the production staff, the team from the ABC, everyone learned a lot more about brewing. And hopefully, you know, audiences around the country will as well. 
Oh, I, I, I think this is going to go, you know, probably not as, you know, being probably not as significant as the, the kind of MasterChef impact on cooking, mainly just because of the, you know, the format. It's not a multi-night a week, mm. three-month series. But I think there will be a lot of people uh, that will be – that will take a lot away from this program and, and certainly – deepen their understanding around uh, around just what goes into to, to making beer. And, I mean, we kind of also snuck some other things in there, you know, about some interesting things that are happening in the world of fermentation and, uh, you know, and bacterias and, and how they somewhat relate back to the world of, of brewing as well. So it's, it's you know, it's, it's 75% beer and there's another little bit in there that's kind of a little bit off-paste with that but still kind of fascinating science that Australia seems to be leading the way in. Which, again, is is a smart way of doing it because there's only so much you can talk about beer and there's only so many stainless steel fermenters you can show um, and and, and keep it interesting. But that's why beer has always been a tough nut to crack for television because with wine, you can teach people how to tie a cravat, for example, at at the same time as you're teaching them how to sort of swirl their their, their wine. But it's, it's part travel um, you know, piece because yes. wineries are where the grapes are grown, which tend to be very beautiful um, parts of Australia. So you can weave yeah. a travel log and you can weave food into it. Whereas yes. beer tends to be made in a you know in a fact well in, in industrial, industrial areas. Area. Yes, it's not quite as sexy, is it? Uh, you know, and every barley paddock looks very similar. You know, they're all in grain growing country. They're all in massive flat Australian landscape and thousand acre paddocks. You know, it's uh once you've shot one, then there's not a lot of you know. It looks beautiful, that one. You know, you get the great gladiator shot of the hand through the dried, uh, you know, sheaves of barley. But, but, uh, but after that, yeah, as you, as you say, and I think, you know, that's why the production company, you know, uh, included the human element, you know, which is to to take the, the viewer in the role of the competitors because they're, you know, they're everyday people. They're not master brewers or they're not, you know, they haven't got any brewing experience. And by adding that human element, you kind of get a little bit more of a a voice around what the process is like. Uh, That's not just coming from, you know, an expert or the host like me. It's nice to just have those opinions of, you know, the trials and tribulations and and the the discoveries of of the contestants because they really add that colour and depth to the program. But yeah, I certainly hope that, um, you know, that the beer drinkers and lovers and connoisseurs uh, of Australia turn to the program and, and take something away from it because it's, um, you know, it's an hour long, so there's plenty plenty of good stuff in there. And it's over a couple of weeks? No, it's just the one. Oh, it's just, just the one. Um, okay, yeah, well. Just one. Yeah, I, you know, I think we, we probably maybe could have made it into two, but it was just with the way, you know, the pandemics put the brakes on travel for making TV programs. It's, it's just it's just so much. It was just made more sense to make a one hour. Mm. Stepping away from the Big Brew Challenge, another TV show, the one that you probably, well, until this one is, um, best known for, um, River Cottage Australia. Uh, you know, you, you hosted that terrific program that looked at food and provenance and, you know, growing your own how much do you think that the craft beer movement is inspired by that same sort of philosophy of you know having you know of, of provenance around food i think it's exploding right now and i mean it's it's a there's an interesting kind of connection between this program and river cottage uh, because when we the last season of river cottage we shot 
uh, was back in 2015. So, wow, seven years ago now, or just under seven years ago, because it was in uh, late, late latter half of 2015. And we went out to the Riverina and we visited this young bloke who was a fifth generation barley farmer. And he had this idea about, um, about, using some Riverina barley to make malt. Uh, and he was experimenting in 20-litre buckets at home uh, and was really kind of trying to find a way to get Riverina barley malted in small batches and couldn't find anyone who would do it. So uh, obviously everyone now would be very familiar with Stu White Cross and Voyager mm. Malt. But in 2015 when I first met him, it was like a, a twinkle in his eye. He was the the malts that he brought on the show to show us were the ones that he was still doing in 20-litre buckets at home. And then, uh, you know, now we had the pleasure of visit, visiting Voyager in this program and, and you know, it's just it's just increased 10,000 volts compared to, to where it was. And, you know, and he's got brewers and distillers, you know, lining up at the door to, to, to use his malts. And, I mean... It's not just the malting process that is the the really fascinating part of it for me is the reinvigoration of old world varieties. So Stu and his collective, because Stu's predominantly involved in the, the malting business now, but he still has excellent connections to the grain farmers of the Riverina. So he has a collective of, of farmers that are interested in, in doing this and they reinvigorate old genetic stock from, you know, from like a vault, from an Australian grain and barley gene bank where they keep, you know, little uh, sachets of barley seed and they they grow them up from a trial patch that might be, you know, two metres by two metres over a couple of years to the point where they can actually sow a paddock with them. Uh, and so through this process, we're seeing that, you know, we're also increasing the genetic diversity of, of barley that's being grown. They're reinvigorating all these old species where, you know, when you're dealing with a big multinational brewer, they they need to know that the consistency of their malt is going to be spot on. So they don't like a lot of variety. They like just that one classic, I know exactly how this is going to be every single time because their system doesn't really allow for that, that variation. Whereas with all the craft brewers now, you know, even they can even make a beer out of the trial plot. <laughs> you, know, they, they, you know, you obviously save seed for to upscale to the next size, but they can take a small portion of that and experiment with that and, you know, and get an idea of in two or three times when there's a, a more commercial quantity of that, of that malted grain coming on board of what they can do with it. Uh, and so, I mean, and I just find it really fascinating that now there's this beautiful interaction between, uh, you know, between brewers that, are, you know, as we kind of said, generally situated in light industrial areas in the middle of cities and these broadacre grain growers, which are out in the grain belts of the Riverina and Western Australia and, you know, and, and Southern Queensland that, um, you know, it's, uh, I just think it's a beautiful connection. And, you know, he gave the example of one of the organic grain growers that grows uh, grain exclusively for wildflower. And, you know, this is like a classic multi-generation uh, grain grower, you know, real kind of country cocky, you know, on the harvester and, you know, bigger Cooper and all that. And he loves nothing more than going up to Sydney into wildflower, into the barrel room and, <laughs> and you know, and then kind of enjoying a, a glass of the beer that his grain makes. Like it's a real, it's a real source of pride for the farmer because, you know, traditionally when you're growing grain in Australia, you put all the effort into the paddock, you put it on a truck and it goes to the the kind of weighing station and it goes off as a commodity, a, a, a per tonne price. 
Whereas when they're growing this, it's they're not they're 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 growing a specialty, you know, and it's not just something that once they've you know, dumped it off at the grain station, they never really see or hear from it again. They, it then goes into the hands of another craftsperson, you know, that, that has a, that appreciates the, the work that the farmer's done and, and then, uh, and then turns it into an amazing beer. So yeah, I reckon there's a, a few very happy uh, Riverina farmers out there that are enjoying <laughs> drinking the spoils of their labour. And I, I guess that's one of the great tensions that exists in, in, in this world of food when we do talk about provenance and things is that, you know, the, the mainstream lagers that, you know, we probably cut our teeth on and are still the most popular, you know, they, they don't have any sharp edges. They're designed to be the same, you know, on the first one and the millionth one. Yeah. And, you know, that has puts pressure on the supply chain because barley needs to be predictable, which sees a standardisation, which sees huge, you know, swathes of uh, grain that are grown to, to, to that element. But yes. if that's all that's being made, then it does have impacts on farmers because the, the grain becomes a commodity and uh, there is downward pressure on price. Whereas, you know, if, if consumers are willing to, you know, buy those as well as the more artisanal beers or the beers that are a little bit more, you know, expressive of an individual's production methods, um, that creates a demand for heirloom varieties that maybe would have been forgotten about because they're not quite as efficient for the big brewers. And it's a, yeah. the more that we can educate consumers about that, the better it is for all of us, I would imagine. Oh, absolutely. You know, and I think that the work that Voyager uh, has done in, in reinvigorating, you know, that, that notion of connection to the paddock, to, to the brewery is really can't be uh, underestimated and you know and, and and not just voyager of course but the the brewers that were willing to take a punt on on this kind of unproven quantity you know that that they you know they from the beginning i'm pretty sure it was small batch um was working with stew uh, and i'm sure someone will correct me if i'm off the mark off the mark there but that you know they're like well look just you you make it we'll find a use for it you know, it doesn't matter. Like we understand you're on a you're on a process here, uh, and we don't want to like you know put too much pressure on you. So if you can if you can malt it, we'll uh, we'll find a way to turn it into a beer. And so that that kind of support of both the brewer and the the farmer uh, and the malter, and you know everyone understanding that they're all along for this same ride, and you know there's kind of experimentation and there'll be setbacks and mistakes and all that kind of stuff. But then knowing that at the end there is the potential to make something really special. So I think the brewing um, the brewing industry is starting to have an increasing impact on um, on the the type of grain that's going to be grown in Australia. I mean, still, as you said, you know, still not the major uh, uh, influence, but it's not to say that that won't continue to grow uh, in the years ahead. And, you know, I think guys like Small Batch and Wildflower and, and what Stu does at Voyager, I mean, they're kind of the, the, the early dawn of this, you know, embracing of heritage barley and grain varieties uh, and, of, and of kind of small plot uh, grain production for specific beers, which is oh, it's so exciting, and I think, you know, and that's just of course the malt and the barley without going down the the path of uh, hops as well. I mean, we did you get to do of, you, you probably yeah, couldn't we, have we, gotten down nah. because of the a the COVID and then also the time of year, which a bit it, it's ironic because hops are the one thing that you can only harvest once a year. Exactly. You know, it was uh, that was we would have we would have loved to uh, to get to a hop farm. We, we were kind of planning on visiting Ryefield Hops, which is, you know, it's actually in my backyard here on the uh, the far south coast. But 
they, um, you know, at the time of year we were shooting the the rhizomes, <laughs> the, the rhizomes have only just shot, and you know, it's it's not, it doesn't make for for great television, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, at the end of the day, you still are making a TV program, and there needs to be a visual, you know, component to it. And if we had been in the middle of harvest season, then I'm sure it would have been absolutely mind blowing. <laughs> but uh, but you know, again, that notion that that. There's so much that can be done there, and I think we'll see an increasing amount of organic hops production and, and small hop estates coming uh, coming through. So, I mean, like, I, and I've said this, you know, a couple of times through through the uh, throughout the course of this interview, Matt, that I, like I just feel like we're at one level of maturation in Australia in our craft brewing and independent brewing industry, but they're just still like we're still growing, and I feel like the, the the direction that the independent craft beer industry is taking is that that greater appreciation and celebration of you know smaller varieties of malt uh you know interesting varieties of hops and and different methods of agricultural production you know whether they're growing organically or using regenerative agriculture or conventional agriculture i think we'll see those stories increasingly coming to the fore I guess the flip side of you know looking at specialty and boutique which is very valuable sometimes in the world of food and you know, just fashion generally, we can fetishize certain things. And, you know, we've seen recently, you know, a lot of chefs talking about foraging, for example. And mm-hmm. I, I just have this image, if foraging catches on too much, that people are going to be descending on yep. every reserve like locusts, stripping it yeah. bare so they can... And yep. the, 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 is there a point that we can can over-fetishize, you know, the, 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 the small and the niche and the boutique to the detriment of, you know, what is good? Yeah, I, absolutely. Uh, and, I, you know, that's you raise an excellent point there, and I've, I've seen it happen, you know, where in the foraging kind of world, sorry, where, you know, the, the chef who might be renowned for foraging uh, goes to do a big dinner and an event for 200 people in a, you know, a beautiful part of the world, <laughs> and they and their team go down and totally clear out a small habitat of that, that plant. You know, it's like, you, like that's, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of missing the point, right? So, yeah, there is a time where the fetishization can become a detriment. Uh, and I think maybe in craft beer, uh, it can be when we start going down the, you know, and this is just my opinion, so, you know. Oh, no, that's what, well, that's what uh, this podcast is going, all about. You know, start going down the path of the, the, the weird and the wonderful at the expense of the, the drinkable. You know, where, where it's like, well, we, we, just because we can make this really obscure, funky, you know, strange ingredient sour that, you know, you can drink about 100 mils of, um, you know, that's, there's a role for that, certainly, in experimentation and creativity. But don't, I, my sense would be that the, that the weird and wonderful is, is, has a role and a place. But at the end of the day, like, particularly in Australia, the, the sessionability has to be, you know, first and foremost. That there's a there's a very small portion of the Australian beer drinking population that want to go on those creative journeys, but the bulk of people just want to smash something cold after mowing the lawn. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, and and I guess the the way I would go with that is, you know, because beer is something you can create anywhere. It's the consumers who are demanding the experience of having this cult brewery from the US or Denmark or Tasmania um, just so they can tick, you know, their list, um, tick it off their list of beers that they've had, which puts a lot of pressure on brewers. And, you know, I think that because beer is local and as a rule doesn't travel, the more that we can make beer locally to reflect 
the climate and the culture and the drinking patterns of the people in a in a particular area, yes. that's going to give us more diverse, you know, honest styles of beer that are relevant to, to the community rather than then shipping beer, you know, unenvironmentally um, uh, around the world. We can uh, yes. Yes. do it using well, local ingredients. There could be ingredients. something special about going to, you know, Germany to drink a beer by the Trappist monks, right? Like in the monastery mm. rather than having it shipped to you at your local, you know, in, you know, kind of funky bottle shop. Uh, not, you know, there's always going to be a role for that, obviously, but the smaller the better. But I think that kind of harks back to what I touched on earlier in the conversation about that, uh, that, that it feels like the brewery is kind of, or the local independent breweries almost rising to the same level of, of significance and ubiquitousness of, uh, of the bakery and butcher shop. You know, that, that increasingly there is not a country town in Australia or, or a suburb in a major city that doesn't have their own brewery. Uh, and then because they're on there with the tap house in their own suburb, in their own town, they know the punters, they know what they like to drink. And there is that that regional relationship, uh, you know, of, of both people and place and space that goes then to, to create a locally relevant beer that the people in that community, you know, know and love and it suits their desires and, and, and demands. So, and again, like that, that, that's the beautiful thing about it, right? Then we're creating this, this much more vibrant and rich ecosystem of breweries in Australia by having smaller independent breweries rather than just, you know, the big, the big players where you just, you get the same thing in a bottle shop in Fremantle as you do in Cairns. And it's exactly the same bloody thing. And there's, there's, <laughs> you know, and like, I guess there's, there's some people enjoy that, you know, cause wherever they go in Australia, they can get their beer cold. But I, uh, you know, I really like this idea of kind of beer tourism, you know, where you're kind of going and traveling to different locations like, people do with winery tours and mm. do cellar experiences but the fact you can go and and you know kind of do tap house tours now where you go and you you kind of sample a little bit of variety of what that that brewery does best and or maybe some of their more obscure beers um and then you you kind of move on <laughs> <laughs> well this, this is probably a question that's not in your direct area of expertise but i know you spend a lot of time out in the garden pondering the great mysteries of life um i think that was in the uh the intro to homegrown about the amount of time you spend pondering these things how do you when you do have two big brewers that make 90 percent of the beer they make it very efficiently and they can brew it down to a price and beer is regarded as something that's you know an everyday item not the luxury premium product that wine can sometimes be seen how do small brewers build that extra value that they need to charge into the beers that gets the average person in a you know country town to spend that extra and not complain about oh you know I could buy this for you know five dollars less if I was somewhere else yeah well I think you know you kind of step into the role that the big guys can't play and that's the hyper localized nature of a, a you know a small brewery and tap house that you know that people they're not just coming for the beer uh, they're coming for the relationship they have with the head brewer or the bar staff or they're coming because there's great food there as well and there's a spot for the kids and they can come and make a Sunday of it. Like they're, they're coming because there's, you know, a local culture there. There might be art or bands or, you know, any of that. And the big guys, they, they, they can't compete with that. Like that's not their business model. They like they like uniformity across, you know, an international range. Whereas with the, being a small player, you, you know, you're kind of, you're layering more up. You know, it's like the difference between 
I guess like a, a kind of upmarket restaurant and a fast food chain. You know, if if you're just in desperate need, you know, you just want a quick feed, no matter where you are in Australia, you know, you can walk into a fast food joint. It's going to be pretty much the same, you know, no matter where you are. But if you're into, you know, you've got a bit more time and you're up for more enjoyment, uh, you know, and you're happy to take your time with it a bit more and, and maybe not drink to get drunk, say, but actually enjoy the beers for the experience, then and that's where the, the local tap houses come in where, you know, you can have an interaction with a, a bar person and they can kind of talk you through the range and you can try a couple of different things. And, and the other the other kind of thing that I like about the tap houses as well and the idea of it being a local thing is the, the idea that, you know, it's like the old school milk delivery. You've got your growlers and your squealers and things like that and you've got your bottle, uh, you know, and you drink one variety and you take it home and, you you know, you might have that as for a session over a barbecue or over a weekend. And then the next week you, you go back and you either get the same beer if you loved it or you want to try something something else you, you fill it up so that it keeps you coming back and interacting with the brewery and, and the tap house itself and and deepening your understanding of beer so i mean that i think what the real challenge for independent brewers are and there's you know only a very small handful that have managed to play this game successfully and they are often the kind of earlier adopters and when you try to play the big guys at their own game which is national distribution you know volume where you talking you know thousands or millions of liters of beer a week going out around australia like there's only a very small 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 slither of the independent beer community that has had success uh in doing that but certainly the the idea of the the you know the kind of local tap house slash brewery i think that's what we'll probably see more of uh in the australian beer culture in the future mate well said. Um, the Big Brew Challenge uh, premieres next Tuesday, the 8th of February at 8.30pm. Um, actually, we'll, we'll plug the book, Homegrown, A Year of Growing, Cooking and Eating. Where can people yep. get their hands on that? Uh, all good book retailers. It's uh, it's around, that's for sure. Uh, it came out just at the end of last year. So, I mean, I'd, it's been a bit different, this one. Usually I'd do a kind of national tour and travel around promoting it, but it's been a, it's been a little bit more of a lo-fi uh, <laughs> launch this year. Uh, as you can imagine, can't imagine why, the pandemic or something like that. Uh, but no, it's certainly uh, still been been going well around the country. So, uh, I mean, it's uh, it's it looks into the four seasons of gardening in kind of temperate, you know, or southern Australia. Brisbane would still be relevant, but you know, probably not so much the tropics. Uh, we just have to reframe it with a little bit of local knowledge and I kind of have a look at each each season about what to plant and uh, how to get success out of the most popular varieties for each season, what to cook and some jobs around the garden. So, And then how to use it in uh, some great recipes. Yeah, exactly. You know, and uh, how you can cook up seasonal produce in nice, simple and accessible recipes. So, yeah, that's um, that was uh, – I was writing that this time last year. Uh, and so it's been great to, you know, to kind of see it come out into the world now at the end of 2021. And, and um, yeah, and I'm still doing a lot of stuff for the ABC. I'm going to go for another catalyst shoot uh, in March, not beer this time. Uh, I don't, I probably can't even tell you what it is this time, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> and doing a bit of back roads and just chugging away in my garden at home. Dare say I'll be doing a homebrew at some stage this year. That'll be nice. Well, hopefully uh, we'll be able to catch up for a beer at some stage this year as well, rather than just talking about it. I reckon. Well, I certainly hope that I uh, get my, I think, what, ninth invite? To regional flavours. To regional flavours. I'm hanging hanging out for that. Whether it happens or not uh, will be amazing, and we'll definitely catch up for a beer there, Matt. I'd love it. Good on you, Paul. Thanks for your time. You're a legend, mate. Thanks so much, Matt. Don't forget, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show 
either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You can find details in the show notes. You can review our podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service. Let us know what you think and help others discover the show. Finally, you can tell us directly what you think by sending an email to producer at bruisenews.com.au. All letters received will receive a Bruise News bottle opener. We love hearing your thoughts on the stories we cover because beer is a conversation. Thanks for listening to that conversation. Now, here's a little bonus for you. As I hear from Lark Distilling's master distiller, Chris Thompson, who tells me a little bit more about Lark's collaboration with brewer Wolf of the Willows. I asked Chris, what is it about this whiskey and beer that really works for him? Firstly, let's start about what's amazing about this collaboration in terms of the liquid. The liquid that we take is completely polar opposite to a Johnny Smoke Porter. So the whiskey component is this bright, fun, fruity, tropical piece, right? And then the beer's like this dark, heavy, velvety, incredibly thick, viscous, you know, it's got bitter and it also has has sweet that play off each other. So that's the beer. And when you bring them together, then what happens is the, the whiskey is kind of like a, a prism. So you think Pink Floyd for me, you have the prism and the, the beer shines through it. But what, the, what it does by adding extra brightness, uh, lift, and alcohol to the beer, it separates the beer out. And then you can see every single component that made that beer. When we're making the whiskey, in our mind, what we're trying to do is showcase the beer in a different way. Now, the Johnny Smoke Port is such a complex and rich beer, but with the alcohol of the, of the whiskey coming through it, then you can see each of those, each of those components. That's the magic of this, this whiskey um, and the magic of the, the collaboration. Like in all seriousness, being a whiskey nut for 15 plus years now, there is not a single whiskey on the planet that looks like this. It does everything that you would expect a whiskey to do, but in a completely different way. Um, and it's, yeah, it's like it's exhilarating. It's exciting like no other whiskey. Yeah, it was probably it's my favorite whiskey to make every year because of that. So as a distiller with 15 years experience, what has Chris learned from his experience in partnering with a brewer? Yeah, probably that I'm a bit dumb. So I've, I started off and was like, no, nah, this isn't going to work. There's no chance that I'll, you know, this whole thing. I was so sceptical. And then we went through sort of one. So we sort of take different casks that look a bit different and we mix it with the beer and be like, what does it taste like? Oh, it doesn't taste very good. And we did that about seventh time, where it was actually the very last whiskey um, sort of representation of the portfolio of what our casks have that we tried that it was like, oh, wow, that's like incredible. We have to do this. And at that point, I don't even think I'd spoken to Scotty. I think um, one of my offsiders, Johnny, had been speaking to, to Scotty about it. And I called Scotty. I was like, we've got to do this thing. I'm excited now. So um, what I learned was that I don't know what I'm talking about, at least five years ago. Don't trust your instincts and try everything. Um, and then from there, there, what we try to do each year is provide the same backbone of flavour um, but do it in a slightly different way. So if Chris was surprised that this collaboration could work, how has that changed over the course of five iterations of this whiskey? You know, Wolf Number 1 was just about um, a pure expression of balance. Wolf Number 2 was um, trying to 
provide the most of this sort of prism experience with the the beer shining through and just showcasing. The third one was about excess. Absolutely, there should be too much of everything going on all of the time. It was just this outrageous, over-the-top thing. The Wolf Number 4, which is my favourite, it's actually my favourite whiskey um, that we've done in my 15 years. So of, you know, 500,000 whiskies that I've blended, um, that's my number one. I've got three bottles at home and they seem to... Uh, it used to be four bottles, so it's probably, probably a pretty good sign. Wolf number four was, to me, just this balanced experience that just it just showcased everything that was great in the beer and just it was just a little piece of um, exhilaration. It's just every time I try it, I just can't believe how much is going on in that, uh, how easily you can see every component of the beer but also the whiskey, but it's only flashes really quickly as it moves on to the next experience, I suppose, the next flavor. And then this year, this year is the one with the most beer in it. So usually what would happen is that we'd fill the casks all the way up with the whiskey to soak the beer out. But we haven't done that this year. We've actually only sort of 60% filled them. So the ratio of beer to whiskey is way higher. And so this year, the, the beer sits as this kind of solid block within the whiskey and it just showcases it in a completely different way, which is which is really magical. And then if you add water to the whiskey, which sort of changes the surface tension, then it just erupts and launches out, which is just, yeah, there's no whiskey like it on the planet and it's just, as you can tell, I get pretty excited. Finally, with so much detail already provided, I asked Chris just how this whiskey is made. In terms of making this thing, there's this like horrific logistics thing that you've got to go through. So. We send barrels of whiskey or, or barrels that have held classic cask, which is one of, uh, I think it's the most popular Australian whiskey ever sold, I think. So it's like, it's our, one of our flagships and it's just, yeah, if you haven't tried it, definitely try it. It's pretty cool. So these are export and sherry whiskey um, barrels, mostly from Sebelsfield Winery and mostly the wood for those will be at least 100 years old. So they would have held wine in it and then they've held fortified either a sherry or a port in it for, you know, 60, 70 years, probably refilled a couple of times, sort of, you know, through its period. But, yeah, generally generally around 100-year-old um, in terms of when it was chopped down as a tree. We get those, we fill it full of our whiskey, then we empty our whiskey out, send them straight up to Melbourne to, um, to Wolf, to, to Scotty. Scotty puts the beer in it, so it soaks out all this kind of porty, sherry, sweet um, whiskies, um, raises the ABV. But then we have an issue because if, if Scotty just empties the barrels out and then sticks the buns back in and shoot, ships them back to us in Tassie, then the chance of oxidisation, the chances of the beer changing in a really negative way, you know, infection as well, are really high. And so the good thing about the product that we make being, you know, 60 plus percent is it freezes that, that process. It freezes that, you know, those changes in the barrel. And so, yeah, what we actually do is we ship the whiskey up. So we'll blend the whiskey against what last year's um, beer was, get a pretty good idea of what it should be. And then what we'll do is we'll ship the whiskey up to, to Scotty to put in the beer barrels. And so they'll empty the barrels and within 20 seconds of that barrel being emptied, there's whiskey going into that barrel. Um, and so you freeze and you capture the pure essence of that amazing beer, which is pain in the ass, to be honest, but it's, a, it's the right thing to do. It's what makes the whiskey so good. So 
That's a little bit about Lark's Wolf Release 5 launching on August 8 this year. I know I'm looking out for this one. Watch out for a few more chats about beer and whiskey in the coming weeks, including a chat with Scott from Wolf of the Willows. 